Compass Data Centers is proud to present our next guest, Jennifer Sprawl. Jennifer is, a, is the president of the Maryland Center for Construction Education and Innovation. With 22 years of experience in the construction industry, she recently served on the National Board of, of National Association of Women in Construction, NAWIC, as the Northeastern Regional Director. She is passionate and advocate, advocates for women in the AEC industry. And I know a little bit about Jennifer. Jennifer and I are friends, and she has a very interesting career path in this industry. So I'm not going to read her entire bio because I would like for her to share how she got into the industry, and then um, we can then dive into some more of these wonderful topics that we're going to talk about. Right. Good you, Nancy. So... Uh, like I think a lot of women in the construction industry, at least that I've spoken to, I accidentally joined the construction industry. I was um, a communications major in college, and when I graduated, um, I got a, a I got a job working for Whiting Turner in their marketing department. Um, and I remember in, sitting in my interview asking, "Oh, you know, what do you think about working in construction?" Well, honestly, before I answered the ad, I hadn't even thought about it. That wasn't my answer, but that was the truth. And here I am 22 years later, um, I've gotten some really amazing opportunities in this industry and it's, it's been, I, I can't imagine meeting anywhere else. That's so great to hear. And honestly, at Compass, we love hearing that, Jennifer, because we do um, love promoting to bring women into the industry and also promoting those who don't have any background so that they can be trained on site. And I have to tell you, the ones that we have here in the U.S., right now we've got 100% of our CMs in the U.S. are women, and the ones we have here in the U.S. are just crushing it. They love it. They're like a part of the family. They're a part of the teams. It's exciting. So I can't wait to talk more about the construction industry so that we can garner some excitement with our audience, and then maybe they'll have some questions on how they can get into the industry. I do have to say, though, starting out, um, just like you know, all women who are in a male-dominated field, but in particular construction being very male-dominated, I'm sure you faced some challenges along the way. So uh, we would love to hear a little bit about some of those challenges so that we can relate to that and then kind of talk about some of the ways you worked through them. So um, I would say when I was, I would say one of the biggest challenges I faced uh, was when I was starting a family. I was working for a small general contractor uh, who had never, um, never had someone take or need maternity leave before. So they were great in that they worked with me and asked me what I wanted, but also as a, like a, a young person, I was in my late twenties, early thirties. It was also, you know, kind of scary having to decide what I wanted. Uh, so it was, I would say that was a, that was a challenge, a hurdle, um, being on a job site, uh, while I was trying to breastfeed my first child and not having a place to do that was really hard. I actually, um, during my second, um, after my second pregnancy, they gave me a conference room to, to pump in and somebody actually like walked in on me, um, because it didn't lock. I mean, I have horror stories about trying to breastfeed and I'm sure any new mom can relate to those things, but, you know, working for some place where you're the first to do something is kind of hard. Oh, I totally agree. And honestly, I want you to know, I relate. I mean, my youngest is only 23 years old, and um, I also was with a company where I was the first ever person running work that was going to have to go and have a baby physically and then return to work. And I also hear a, a lot of stories about 
you know, women who have, you know, had to make those difficult decisions, you know, like you said, your company was kind enough to say, you know, what is it you want to do? Um, and some of the decisions around that end up being, um, well, you know, let's work part-time for a while till I get a normalize my life. And then what you find, and, and I found this pretty much across the board is this part-time work effort ends up being a full-time with part-time pay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that I do remember everyone kept asking me if I was going to go part-time. Um, and honestly, part-time is hard to do if you need daycare. Uh, especially if you want to use like a center and not a person's home. Um, it's almost more expensive. I actually found that it was more expensive to pay for part-time care than a full-time um, salary, uh, full-time like weekly care because you're taking up the spot. And um, it just didn't make sense. There was no way I could survive. Um, we could survive paying daycare on one salary or one and a half salary. So it was, um, it was never something. Plus I love, I love working and just because I was a mother um, didn't mean that I was going to stop. I guarantee nobody asked my husband if he was going to go part-time when we had our trial. That's a good point. I always like it. I like to encourage, you know, kind of doing the role reversal when we're talking about these kinds of choices. And it's also a very good point on, you know, just the affordability of daycare or nannies and, um, you know, what the expectation is there. Um, but I also think, you know, like, and you and I talked about this earlier, it's like, you know, it's really, um, not a right or wrong thing. It's about having the decision and feeling good about whatever that decision is and feeling strong in that decision. Men and women should both, you know, in my opinion, you know, be able to make those kinds of decisions about how they want to split that caregiving time and still maintain, you know, their, their financial viability as a family, as a unit, right? Absolutely. So that's great. Well, so Let's pivot over here to, um, you know, kind of the, what we see coming up and what's current, what's future, um, you know, what changes you've seen related to welcoming more women into the industry. And then really, I'd like to dive into a little bit of how the Maryland Center for Construction and Education um, can enhance that and, and help us with this diversity conundrum that we face. Absolutely. I mean, I... I'm sure we've seen this and your um, viewers have seen the stats on the increase of women in the last couple of years. Um, I would say probably the first 40 years or so that we were in the industry and actually out of, uh, out in the workforce, we were stuck at about 9%, nine, little under 10% of the industry. And now um, nationally we're at 14%. Um, and in fact, in uh, Washington, DC, women make up 17.6%. Um, wow. That's outstanding really that's amazing. Huge. That's huge. It's huge. And it's been quite, it's been, um, since about 2018 is when the, when the numbers started to climb, but within the last, I would say 24 months is when we've seen the major jump. Do you know, I mean, is there a why behind that? I, I mean, I think a lot of it is just education of women realizing the opportunities. It's like the message is finally getting out there. Uh, it's probably the biggest, um, biggest, I was wondering if, um, you know, I mean, you, you do, one of the popular topics um, nowadays on in social media and on the news is the whole, you know, student loan, student debt, and, um, and then kind of the promotion of the vocational trades and how, you know, you can make a really good livelihood doing that. And that's from the tool carrying, you know, aspect, not necessarily the, um, you know, the management part of things. Because we've struggled in the industry, um, both in the trades and then also in, in you know, the management ranks and or supervision ranks. So, um, so it's, 
I, I, I am curious about whether the trades have gone, I mean, they used to be at about 3%, I think, women. And you're right, the management was always at 9 or 10%. And um, now we've seen increases in, I think, in both areas, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we're still under 5% in the trades, but it has gone up. And I'm here anecdotally from um, all the apprenticeships here in the state of Maryland that their numbers of women are increasing. Um, like, for example, I was talking to IBEW and they were saying, I think they were at like 15% of their current um, apprentices were women. And I, I personally have just seen more women. I think, honestly, social media is really helping. That's there's helping, really, yeah. Yeah, there's some women, uh, tradeswomen that are really out there and are influencers. And I think, and they're not some like stereotypical, like gruff person. Like they're, you know, young and fun and they're like advancing steadily in a male populated career. So it's pretty cool to, to see and I think encouraging for young people. That's also a good point. Social media does help. And I, and I would like to encourage our audience to kind of spread the word and share the podcast because, you know, we, um, I was just on a, a call this morning uh, with um, a group called WIMCO. It's women in mission critical, right? And they were looking at uh, one of the, you know, one of the struggles we have, which, which is advancing uh, advancing women. And I think you and I, Jennifer, talked uh, last time that we were together about, you know, the fact that the industry is is really good in the fact that there's not a huge pay gap based on, you know, classification of labor or certain levels. But when it comes to the advancement part, like being able to push women up into those leadership roles, we still see a lot, a, a huge challenge there. Absolutely. And I often think it's just um, unconscious biases of hiring practices, of promotion practices, of um, not recognizing the leadership qualities that women have versus men, you know, like transformational leadership versus transactional leadership and those types of things, I think are what are holding women back when we're being held to that, you know, the, the double bind of being too aggressive, but not forceful. And it just, or all those know, double language standards. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So I think that's a lot of it. And honestly, I, I know that if any um, man in leadership or even a woman, because we often um, are our own worst enemies um, and we hold women um, to different standards than we do men um, as women. But Good I would point. say you recognize that, just learn, like realize it. And then maybe you'll think about it you know, when you're, when you're, you know, reviewing a mid-management level woman, like, and, and if you think twice, so like, am I being, you know, blind to, to my own biases, then that might help a little bit. Um, it's just the education. No, but I don't think people are maliciously holding women back. I think it's just a That's outstanding advice. It really is, Jennifer. I mean, you and I, again, we've talked about the fact that there's implicit bias in everybody, right? We all have it because we're human. And I do, I do believe that most of the time I see it occurring, it's typically done, believe it or not, with good intentions, because someone's kind of making a decision on your behalf for what they think is best for you. And it's, it's changing that stereotypical, um, you know, kind of systemic way that we're brought up that says, you know, you know we, we need to make those choices on our own and feel good about those choices, like we stated earlier. But yeah, um, I love that, um, that comment you made about you know, really conditioning yourself before you get ready to look at promotions or, you know, or, or opportunities or, you know, hiring practices and asking yourself, you know, like, you know, put that yourself in that right mindset of, 
you know, do I have biases? Of course I do. Okay, what are those? And how can I make sure those don't interfere with the decision I'm making? Because I tell you, I've interviewed folks where I'm, I do question myself. I really, you know, fall in love with one of the candidates and I have to ask myself, is it because they're so much like me or, you know, or is it, or is there a reason I was struggling with because this person is not so much like me and what other attributes am I looking for that will actually balance my team a little better and bring some more diverse talent in, which we desperately need. Right. Absolutely. And I think it's um, really important. I hear all the time, I'm hiring the best person for the job, right? I don't care their gender, their race, their sexual orientation, but like, honestly, a lot of times the best person for the job is someone that looks like the person that had it before or, or has the same attributes. And so I think we need to try and get rid of that language. Um, I know it's good intentions language, but get rid of that and, you know, actually implement some hiring practices that try and take away um, any biases that you would have. I think you're right. I, because I was also, I was kind of laughing it to myself when you said best person for the job, because so many times there's this um, idea that, you know, we're going to put women on boards or we're going to put women in leadership as tokens. And then everyone always warns you, like, don't forget, you know, we need the most qualified person. And I always kind of look back and think, yeah, like, because every single, you know, man who's on a board or in a leadership position is clearly the most qualified. And if you're a woman, there's a, there's a chance that you might not be or something. It's just, you know, it's kind of, it's funny when you, when you actually put it in that perspective, but that is another systemic, you know, belief that people have, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's been a problem ever since, you know, we had any idea of quotas whatsoever. Um, somebody thinks, oh, well, I don't want, especially a lot of women think, oh, well, I don't want to be a quota. I don't want to be hired because I was a woman. You were never hired because you're a woman. Never. You were hired because you were the right person for the job. But maybe somebody said, I'm going to give this person an extra look because they're a woman. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard um, nut to crack, honestly, because, you know, we, we also, you know, want to make sure that we're bringing our full selves and our talent and be, you know, kind of respected and recognized for what we know. And, and I, so I, I mean, so I do think that to your, I love the fact that, you know, that things are improving because we want to be on that trajectory. I also believe firmly, and I think you agree with me that we can't rely on our, our laurels to just continue along this trajectory. As we've seen in uh, past statistics where, you know, there was about a 10 year period of time where women were being added to boards at a very steady pace. And then there was a backslide, right? Because it's hard to kind of keep that pipeline full, especially when you're looking at the advancing roles of women. Um, I do, I do want to really dig in a little bit to, you know, what your center does and how it helps us become more diverse as an industry. Yeah. So, um, we are a nonprofit workforce intermediary. We were founded in 2009 after the last um, recession. Once um, the you know the biggest names here in construction in Maryland realized our impending doom when it came to uh, workforce and the pipeline, and um, I mean you know the stats: every four people that are retired, only one person's coming in. So um, yeah, we were founded then. We are kind of a connector between the education industry, industry and government, making sure that our pipeline starts when they're, you know, still in K to 12 uh, school programs. It, there's it, a lot of people, I think, focus on, you know, the person with three to five years experience and trying to get them in. But we really need to focus on um, as young as um, elementary school and getting kids interested in 
um, careers and making them realize that working with their hands isn't um, isn't something that you're not shouldn't be looked down upon. That you have amazing career opportunities, um, and then it's you know working with them as they progress, giving them internship and a pre-apprenticeship opportunities when they're in high school, and then um, and it's just the career um, exploration, and then um, working with adult learners too, and making sure that somebody in a workforce development program, you know, from Baltimore City, not only realizes what they're being trained in those 12 weeks, but knows all of the available opportunities to them. That's a little bit of what we're doing here at MCCI. That's great. I know. And I, I wanted to focus a little bit on the I part, the innovation. Since I'm chief of innovation, I thought we should focus on this. So in the industry, since, you know, the beginning of time when you and I first entered, <laughs> Innovation and technology has has you know made some some good inroads into the construction world. Do you do you think that has um, you know not just opportunity but also made a difference in you know who it's attracting to our Absolutely. industry? Absolutely. Um, and I honestly I think as an industry we probably aren't capitalizing enough on the eye, um, and we are we have made some significant advances in the last even five years on the technology and the innovation. But I don't know that we're really doing a great job of selling that. And we are still kind of trying to recruit the same people that we were recruiting 20 years ago. Uh, so I do think that that is an opportunity, a pipeline that we aren't really tapping into right now or kids that are interested in tech. Um, I mean, I've worked for gen- uh, construction managers that have software divisions. Um, I know now they probably are hiring people to fill those positions with those roles, but so many times I've worked somewhere when they've got, you know, drones or laser scans or anything, and they just give it to the young project engineer to be in charge of. And you can be, why why not hire somebody that actually has like robotics experience or something like that? Uh, So there is no learning curve. And then you can teach them the construction part because IT is the number one um, construction, I mean, a career and technical education pathway in the state of Maryland, I'm assuming all schools. Yeah. So that's the most number of kids. You got to be able to pull some of them. Some of them there like would be interested in construction if we just expose them to well, that. Well, this is how I look at it. And this is why I love the technology part of it. Um, we are in the middle of the, well, the beginning of rather the fourth industrial revolution, right? We're digitizing everything. So even when you look at the humanities and the sciences, you know, they've blended because now, you know, there's digital literature and there's digital art and digital photography and digital music. And, you know, it's really just amazing when you look at this fourth industrial revolution, which is digitizing the world and construction is no different, right? We build off digital documentation. We, uh, we collect digital information to understand performance and operations. And now we're, you know, we've got these new um, technologies that can help us neutralize, you know, things like the brute strength that it takes and um, that causes, you know, injury and, and, and kind of eliminate some of the pop- possibilities of some of the trades um, by using, you know, exoskeletons and robotics and offsite manufacturing and all the innovative ways that we want to normalize our business to make it more productive, more attractive and more diverse. So I'm 100% agreeing with that. The innovation is so important to our industry. And I would love to, you know, continue along that road of disruption. And I think that, you know, what you're doing is, is part of that. It's a huge part of that, especially when you have to, when you have to like, you know, educate people about it, right? And, and how, how vast it really is. Yeah. 
we had a symposium at the end of October, I think. I don't know. My days are running together. But one of our um, topics was on um, innovation and how to harness it when you're recruiting and um, retaining your employees, but also just like, what's the industry going to look like? Who should you be recruiting? Um, and you think we talk about like pre, um, prefab and manufacture, the industrialization basically of the construction industry. And I mean, think about no one in construction really has a logistics experience, but why, why can't there are people that are majoring in logistics? There are people, uh, career changers that we could be um, pulling from manufacturing um, companies and whatnot. So there, there is a lot, I think, a lot of opportunity for the construction industry to really um, learn from other industries like tech, like manufacturing. And um, I, I think I saw a stat that said, like, if you look at productivity of all these other industries, and they just have gone steadily gone up and construction's actually just going down um, that we we need a we need a major um, re, major overhaul on on that and and who we're we do I mean I spend a lot of my time talking about that very thing um, because it makes me sad that we have you know such a great industry with such a large ecosystem and um, and we and we have a lot of new um, in, in innovative ways of doing stuff but we really haven't improved that tool time that. You know, the tool time right now um, the, on average is only about 40 percent, um, you know, per body, um, meaning like 60 percent of someone's time that's carrying a tool is, is like waiting on information, um, looking for data, getting you know, design, materials, equipment, you name it. Just, you know, logistics, like you said. Um, and so it's so really kind of focusing on, you know, the person with the tool in their hand, regardless of what your role is. Is kind of the beginning part of disrupting the business to make it better, like some of these other industries that we could absolutely learn from. And I want to, I, you know, I kind of wanted to kind of uh, branch out just a little bit because I, I love the statistics. And I love teaching our audience about some of the stats around how big the business is, right? So when you when you really look at the built environment, I've been very much um, in tune with you know, our obligation related to sustainability. So again, there's other roles, right? You've got cybersecurity, you have sustainability, you've got, you know, like you said, logistics, there's all these different types of accounting, you know, estimating, you know, all of these different types of roles that we, that we need um, in this massive ecosystem to build for, you know, anybody and everybody. And on the front of sustainability, you know, um, the, the way the stats show right now, the way they stack up is somewhere between 45 and 50% of the built environment, including maintaining, operating, and upgrading buildings is responsible for global greenhouse gases. So the opportunity to be able to really pivot there and have a meaningful career that can really solve some global problems is huge. It's just huge. Absolutely. And I, on, I just had a conversation this morning with one of my board members about the messaging that the industry is lacking. It's lacking in the, we are affecting the world more than any other industry out there. And we have the opportunity to change the world more than any other industry out there. And I don't think we do a really great job of selling that to, to young people, to their parents, um, anything. Gen Z really cares about the impact they're having. They um, do their careers they do. and women and minorities do too uh, yeah. and we're trying to diversify we're trying to attract more people that's the message we need to be selling is you're literally building the world you're building places families 
um, are made hospitals and churches and schools and roadways, um, everything, everything. And you can, I mean, like you said, when it comes to um, global warming, we have, we have the responsibility as an industry, but also the tools as an industry to, to make a difference. You know, what you said there earlier about like people not, you know, being exposed to that is fascinating to me because I, you know, I travel quite a bit. I, I go to many different conferences and, and areas and I do speak about, um, you know, my passions. And one of those is sustainability. And when I talk to other experts who are experts in, you know, global warming, climate change, sustainability, greenhouse gases, all of those things, they're always a step back and a bit surprised at what they hear about the built environment. Um, and that is a challenge that I think is going to become more in, in the front and center. It, I mean, I, I love the stat that I, I heard it during one of the um, sessions I was in, and it was, if concrete was a country, it would be third in line to China and, and, and the U.S. Um, for global greenhouse gas emissions, right, for a contributor. And um, it just put that, you know, it's the most, you know, abundant material on the planet. And it's just, it's, it's one of those things where we know we have technology that can help us improve and reduce the amount of cement we use in concrete, which is the major contributor to the greenhouse gases, right? So those types of technologies are exciting and very viable. And, and so again, I wanted to bring up like that one other aspect, not, not to, you know, discount, you know, the cybersecurity part, right? And being able to right. build secure facilities all over the globe and then and, uh, protect privacy and, you know, um, intellectual property and things like that that are so critical to us. Absolutely. And I, uh, on that same call that I had earlier today, we talked about um, the growth of mass timber uh, buildings. And um, they were telling me that they had a, a six-story building going up that was all wood. Um, and no, no concrete at all, which I thought was amazing. Even the floors are wood, uh, and they they were able to get over, um, you know, the FR ratings and whatnot, and make sure that it was um, pass code. And I think that's that kind of innovation is really exciting um, and interesting to see, like where where the industry is going to go in the next, you know, ten years or so. Well, and there's no one solution, but there's many, many solutions. And what excites me and gives me a positive outlook is that I know that we have the ability and technologies to do a lot of what we need to do already. It's just a matter of normalizing it, making the business case for it, you know, getting the word out there. So, so part of me feels comfort in the fact that we know how to do stuff and we're continuing to develop things. It's just literally trying to make it, um, you know, something that the built the built environment can do, and um, and still, you know, man, you know, have their livelihoods in check. And the other, you know, thing that's as a struggle, and then I'm going to get down to like, you know, just kind of like what your what your wish is for the industry, um, Jennifer. But but the other thing I want to point out is, so I mean, we we talk about you know all these opportunities within the built environment. And I just want to make sure people understand that this is a this is a train you just can't jump in front of, right? This is something that is perpetual, and it's exciting to be a part of. So I, I mean, that when it comes to like you know just impacting everybody on the planet, the built environment is a way in which we do that. It, you know, with um, infrastructure, with digital transformation, with water, with power, with you know. Like you said, um, hospitals, airports, you know, transportation, all of that. And I would love to, you know, repeat the fact that we need to learn from like the manufacturing industry and get better at being able to do those types of things. So 
we're in it to win it. And I think that your organization um, understands that and that innovative part's gonna help us a lot. So I would like to know now, if it was blue sky for Jennifer, what would your wish be for our industry? I wish that the industry was a place that everyone, everyone felt safe, welcome and secure and that they would um, see that the amazing success they could have in this industry. And right now, I don't think we're quite there yet. That is a very, very wonderful wish to have. It, it is, it really is. And I mean, having a welcoming environment is so important when you come to work every day. Now, you know, not just knowing that you're in a noble profession, but you're contributing, you're making a difference, but also feeling like you belong there, right? Exactly, belonging, I think is the part um, that I've recently realized um, through conversations um, with DEI experts, that that B that we often forget about. Um, and when we talk about DEI, um, in fact, it was um, our, our, um, our moderator from our DEI session at our symposium, um, Dr. Um, Estelle Marie Montgomery, she, she talked very much um, about the sense of belonging. And it, I mean, it is, I think what keeps a lot of, it keeps the industry um, 80% white and 90% male um, is that B. Um, and I know we're, we're working our way um, away. And, and I guess now, well, we're not quite 90% anymore. We're a little bit better, 86%. But, but we still have a long ways to go when the, when the population itself is about 50-50. Uh, we still have quite a bit to go to make, make it a place that women feel hundred percent like they belong. I absolutely agree. And I, you know, that is like the best note ever to conclude on. I love the message of belonging and I would like for our audience to not just think about that and reflect on it, but also share that message because belonging makes all the difference in whether you want to come to work every day and bring your full self and belong to this wonderful industry that is changing the way we live. So thank you so much, Jennifer. I would like one more um, tag here at the end, and I would like for our audience to know how to reach you and how to get involved with what you're doing. Yeah, um, so I'm very active on LinkedIn. You can search me up there um, or go to our website, mcpi.org. Um, there's a million ways. We have sponsorship opportunities, guest speaking opportunities, um, and um, would love to connect with anybody. Um, even if you're not in Maryland, uh, I have cohorts and colleagues all over the country, actually even internationally as well. Oh, that's fantastic. That's very good to know. Well, thank you again. I'm so happy to have you as a guest on Breaking Glass, and I look forward to us publishing this and then getting the wonderful feedback so that we can continue to grow and improve. Thanks, Nancy.